following is an exclusive presentation of News Radio KMAN, your home for K State Athletics. It's game time. This is the game on News Radio KMAN. I thought I let it go. It was such a long time ago, and the season, the result of it was very spectacular. But it's a game that still haunts me. Welcome to the game. I'm Mitch Fortner alongside Troy Coverdale. Big Steve is here running the board. Not every day, right? It's been a while since he's actually been in the controls. Uh, it's, on the control it's, it's amazing how he's found people to pawn that off onto. Well, I've got other stuff going on, all right? <laughs> it's always the excuse, right? I need, I got other things I need uh-huh, to do. I'll let a part-timer uh-huh. yep. take care of the board today. I'm still a part-timer, though. Well, you don't seem like it. You're here. <laughs> feels like you're here more than I am, right? I take care of a lot of stuff. Yeah, Big Steve is pretty important around here. He'll let you know, too. <laughs> okay, I won't go that far. No, I'm not no, that no, egotistical. Don't, don't be humble. Don't be... <laughs> oh, boy. Well, the game is us three today, and uh, you know what, Royals fans, yeah, you, you know what, there's something to be happy about, I feel like. You got what you wanted, at least one of the things that you want yeah, to happen. Yeah, and still, Cal Eldred has a job. Coming up at the end of this hour, we'll hear from Sam Honeybuns, who has a movie review for us from the weekend. It's not the movie I wanted. I am going to go see it. It's that Elvis movie, but he has reviewed another one for us. I made its debut this past weekend. Folks like the Elvis one. Uh Trafficked about as much as what uh, as what Top Gun Maverick did over the weekend. They tied it yeah. thirty point five million. Oh, for tops this I, weekend. I would have guessed Top Gun Maverick would have made a lot more money than that. Its first weekend. No, no, this was this was just this weekend. They oh, both, oh, you mean oh, they I, tied for weekends. this weekend? Not Got the, you. Yeah. Well, I would have thought the Elvis movie would have made more money than that. Mm-hmm. Got split with Top Gun Maverick. Well, people no, saw us rated PG-13. I'm like, well, if I'm not getting the full Elvis experience. And you throw in the uh, Jurassic World still being out. Welcome to Blockbuster season. I saw somebody shared a video. It was on Twitter, just one of those random accounts that share things like that. And it was when Elvis, for the first time, was on uh, the Ed Sullivan show. Yes. And he was like, he comes out and the place is just going bananas. Women are screaming their heads off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like modern pop stars these days. People screaming their heads off. They're seeing their favorite pop stars. But I mean, the king of rock, right? And uh, I mean, it, I don't know what year it was, but he's like talking about how you know he's going to play a sad song. And then he's like revving up that arm. He's ready to strum that guitar, and the place is going nuts again. Any movement he made, right? The place was going nuts, and then he jumps into Hound Dog, and the place goes berserk, uh, insane. They were so happy for that moment, but and then the, hip, the hips come into play. Yes, and the shot changes. The hips come into play, and those got the lattice screams. Nineteen fifty-six, and well. The thing about that, though, is like I remember hearing, like I remember my grandma telling a story about the Elvis impact and how that changed, how she felt that changed music, and I I thought that was very interesting because she lived through that, mm-hmm. and the beat. I asked her what, like, what was it like seeing the Beatles upcoming because they're Ed Sullivan show watchers, right. and um, 
but the whole Elvis thing, the hip shaking. I, I read a comment. He's like, you know, I remember watching this live, and then my parents telling me to go to my room as soon as the <laughs> hip shaking went on, and I had to listen to it the rest of the time. I could, as somebody who's thirty-one years old and did not live back then, it, it is a bit baffling to me that something like that was so. It, in a way, it was trailblazing, but it was also offensive to those, yeah, to a lot of people, yeah, to dance like that to your own music. Not only that, I mean. Then you also factor in. Folks that, thought it was sending a certain kind of message. Yes, that it was a highly sexualized message. And oh, by the way, he's playing that. And again, as it was termed at the time, he's playing that black music. Oh, is that what it was? Too? That was a big part of it as well. I always heard the devil music. It, that would that would work in there as well. Yes, yeah. but keep in mind that you know many felt that jazz also was the devil music. I also want to touch on uh, Dylan Edwards. He uh, made a big statement on Thursday about wants to flip some folks. Gave a shout-out to um, Avery Johnson, the Mays High School four-star quarterback. And uh, he's been doing a little bit of work over the weekend on the social media. It's number one song of the day, and Ask Us Anything is coming up. Uh, but right there to start, I mentioned a game that's now haunting me. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to 2003. The 2003 game I am talking about is the Marshall game. When I was a kid growing up, I mean, I, I know for most fans, the most haunting game when it comes to K-State football would be the Big 12 championship game in 98. Totally understand. But at that time, I was eight, and my number one priority was not K-State football at the time. I was just a kid that wanted to go hang out with his friends, ride bikes around town, go and get a little bit of trouble. That's what was my main focus, just hanging out with friends on the weekends. So I didn't pay as close attention to K-State football. I still paid attention to it, but I wasn't obsessed with it yet. Mm -hmm. When I became obsessed with it was like around the year 2000. That's when I really got into it, really started to pay attention to it more. Uh, I started to get into sports a lot more at the time. Back then, I was just like playing baseball in the summers, and at recess, I'd go shoot some hoops and play freeze tag. That's about as far as it went. The Marshall game is the first game I can remember – at a time where I was just so torn up inside about a loss, the 03 Marshall game. And I think back then I didn't realize exactly what was going on, the significance of the game. I knew L. Robinson wasn't going to play. He could have, right. but he didn't play. He was dealing with that left hand injury, left uh, wrist injury, whatever it was back then. And that's something that lingered throughout the season mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. But I knew, you know, he wasn't going to be used because it was a non conference game. A team, Marshall team, that was one in two. K State's undefeated, the number six team in the country. But another reason why I was so obsessed with that team that season and why that game hurt so much is because I remember specifically at the beginning of the season, I believe it was the show College Game Day, it was predicted K State would play in a national championship game that year against, I remember the opponent as well, Virginia. It was going to be K State and Virginia. In the national championship game. Holy smokes, did they get that wrong. And then here comes the Marshall Thundering Herd into town. And, of course, it would be one of three games K-State and Marshall would mm-hmm. play. And not only is L. Roberson out, also Marshall's first-string quarterback would mm-hmm. not play in that game. So Jeff Schwinn becomes the quarterback for K-State, and it's his second start. And, I mean, after, you know, there was a – Touchdown in the first quarter, should have scored again, and then 
there's the option pitch that gets taken to the house by the other team from 89 yards out. A couple of fumbles by the quarterback. And yet, K-State is marching down the field, big thanks to Darren Sproles, to potentially tie the game. And a pass goes through the hands of Davin Dennis. And the game comes up short for the Cats. And, of course, the next game, L. Roberson would come back, lose to Texas, and the next game lose at Oklahoma State, both of those games on the road. But I knew, you know, I knew at the time Marshall wasn't a good team. They weren't good at running the ball, yet they ran for over 200 yards that game. I mean, I knew at that point what that loss meant. I knew what that meant. As a 13-year-old kid, I knew mm-hmm. that K-State, who played 13 regular season games that year, and played 15 games for that whole season. It's the only time K-State's ever played 15 games. But at that point, that's game number five, that a shot at a national championship is probably not going to happen. Now, of course, after that Oklahoma State game, K-State goes on to win the rest of their Big 12 games, including the Big 12 championship. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning of the show, where the season turned out to be a spectacular mm-hmm. finish when it comes to the Big 12 championship game. You just stun number one Oklahoma. But it's, to me, one of the biggest what-ifs. If K-State could survive that Marshall game, what could have happened? I mean, College Game Day was there for that Texas game, mm-hmm. and the Cats lose by a possession. You lose at Oklahoma State by a possession. I don't know. It's one of those what-ifs that stick in my mind. If I were to do a top 10 list, which I always do every Tuesday, but I hear the girlfriend has one for uh, <laughs> for tomorrow, which, uh, boy, I can't wait for that. Um, I feel like I'm going to get roasted. But uh, all weekend, by the way, she was like, we were hanging out, of course, and mm-hmm. every time I'd do something, she'd be like, well, there's number 12, there's number 14. <laughs> I was like, God, I'm going to get it. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, what was I saying? Um, I forgot what I was saying about the Marshall game, but remind me. Uh, that you had, that where the Cats were and what they were able to accomplish, having had game day with the Texas game. You know, it's that reminder, though. Yeah, it it's the reminder that, yes, dang it, it took us out of a national championship. Oh, I, birth, I know what I'm saying. But, about the top ten. Yeah. If I were to do a top 10 list of the K-State games, the losses that still bother me the most, the Marshall game would be in the top five. No doubt about it. Marshall is in the top five. But it's haunting me because on Twitter, there's a, there's a, there's a Twitter account. I really like it. Most, like 99.9% of the time, I really like it because it's like a, it shows the highlights and it's like ESPN uh, highlights, mm-hmm. the montage of highlights showing what happened with a particular game, and it's a lot of upsets, a lot of classic games. It's a nice flashback to a classic game from back in the day, and the one that pops up a couple of days ago, it feels like a week ago now, because I've seen it so much, was that Marshall game, and I don't think I've seen highlights from that game since it was played on Fox Sports Net back in 2003. Haven't seen a play of that game since it aired that day. And I watched the entire highlight. I was like, my God. <laughs> yeah. It still stings to me. That is one that just, it will always sting because we all know it, it shouldn't have happened. And the big what if is what if Bill Snyder decided, okay, we should probably try to play L. Roberson, even though his wrist is banged up and it was said, uh, could have played, but didn't want to. 
try to play him. It was a non-conference game. You know, whatever else was said, you know, just it, it, it's always right. going to be a big what if to me. Right. Texas A&M in the Big 12 championship game. Well, that's, for sure. That's I mean, the that's the what if game for me. What if, you know that that's the what if game for everybody. And I'm not saying the Marshall game is like the most ultimate what if, but I mean, 98, yes, A&M for sure. What if the score, you know, which Coach Snyder didn't want to happen? What if the score in St. Louis wasn't announced or whatever, or put on the big screen, the fans with the TV in the stands reacting to it? You know, what if all that stuff? Yeah, I get it, uh, but. You know, Marshall is kind of that dark horse into that category of the what ifs, which of course led to a string of a couple of other losses. You know, what if those didn't happen as well? But Marshall was the, kind of the start. Mm-hmm. You know, Vel Roberson doesn't get hurt. It was at the UMass game. I, I can't remember for sure what game it was, but it, now I can't get away from those highlights. I'm seeing them every single day. If you like that video, I am going to unfollow you if I follow you. <laughs> Now, Twitter, the algorithm is screwing you up. If you know somebody that might follow right. this account, now you're going to start seeing the, the material. And I don't like this anymore. Like, I, I don't like that new step Twitter has taken to where, Troy, if you like something that has to do with you know K-State basketball, losing that game last year to KU, mm. blowing that 17-point lead, you just happen to like an account – or follow an account that shows those highlights over. It's like, come on, I, I don't right. I don't follow this account. Why am I seeing all this stuff? So anyway, it's gonna still it's gonna stay with me now forever. I'm gonna have bad dreams about it. That Marshall game has bothered me for 19 years, and now because of this video that's come up on Twitter, it's gonna haunt me for another 19 years. Um, for <laughs> uh, for uh, Royals fans, Cal Eldred has been haunting their dreams for. Four seasons now. Um, there hasn't been a change with that, but there has been a change at first base. And I know Troy, for one, and I am too, but Troy is a happy camper. The details are mm-hmm. next. This is the first album I owned with cursing on it. <laughs> Papa Roach. Mine was American Idiot by Green Day. This song has a pretty hard F word at the beginning. The game. Mitch Fortner, Troy Coverdale. Big Steve. Let's see if I get a reaction out of you guys, but Troy doesn't seem like a big Papa Roach guy. No, not really. I wouldn't think so. They were uh, what you would call butt rock. And they also play way too many festivals. That's where they get their gigs. They just play a bunch of festivals. It's basically just a handful of riffs and away you go. I think Big Steve would argue. I like a majority of their songs. There's some that are like, eh, that wasn't all that great. I am going to go see them in August. Uh, kid that uh, went to Clay Center, his band opened for Papa Roach back in the day. That was a big deal at the time. Chevelle was there as well. I do like me some Chevelle. They're pretty awesome. The game continues as uh, we just heard there from a Game Sports Update with Troy that uh, Royals uh, doing a little bit of movements. Mm-hmm. 
with the lineup, with the trade, Carlos Santana, first baseman, has been traded to the Seattle Mariners for a couple of pitchers and some cash. Meanwhile, there has been a call-up from AAA Omaha. And I asked, uh, I asked Troy, what would you rather have? Cal Eldred fired <laughs> or Vinny Pasquantino called up from AAA? And he, he, you know, like I think most people would pick Cal Eldred fired as pitching coach of the Royals. And yet he still has a job. He still has his job. But you know what? This is a pretty solid consolation. A pretty solid consolation because just as much as fans have been asking for Dayton Moore to get rid of Cal Eldred, and I'm sure most would just be happy with Dayton Moore getting canned as well, even though, I mean, I do think there's a should be more respect shown, but I get it as well. It's it's a Bruce Weber story all over again. Was successful at one point, now not so successful. Everybody wants to see him gone type of thing. Um, but everybody's also been asking, can we please get Vinny Pasquantino up and let's get him rolling? He is hot right now in AAA Omaha. Maybe not so hot, as hot lately, but his numbers are still very solid. Hitting the home run ball for instance, get him called up. This is the future. We need a lifeline. He's a lifeline. So he get, he does get called up today. So, Troy, I want to go to you for your reaction. I'm thrilled. I am absolutely thrilled to see him get the opportunity because not only was Santana blocking him just by being on the roster, you're talking about a kid who has – done nothing but perform for you at every level in what is a meteoric rise through the Royals organization. That's versus Santana, who is essentially a stiff at this point of his career. I shouldn't say it that way, but for crying out loud, second half of last season and the 52 games this season that he's been in have been less than Carlos Santana-esque for his career. And the fact of the matter remains is that wasn't a good signing to begin with for Kansas City. It just, it never seemed to be a case where there was a fit. You have guys in the pipeline that could have easily done much of what Santana was doing last season even and be better off financially in that you're not paying $18.5 million, for crying out loud. So, that alone makes me happy to see that we'll get an opportunity to look at a prospect with an opportunity to move forward. Now, it's, one of my social media friends here in the state made the comment that it is a sell-off. for the. No, it's not a sell-off. They're ridding themselves of someone who was blocking a prospect. And if this team is going to develop a prospect, why not at this point? Why not when you know, you're not all that dramatically bad of a team in your own division, but you're also at a point now this summer where you couldn't ignore Pascantino's numbers down at AAA. You just couldn't at this point. And it continued to make it tough for you to have a reason to justify keeping Carlos Santana on your roster. Not only does the T 
team rid itself of Santana. It got lighter in the wallet by about $4 million. But, you know, for the remainder of the season, Santana's getting a, it still got a $1.5 million portion of his contract coming from that. So the Royals are catching about a third of that. And the Mariners will cover the rest of it. Well, the Royals haven't finished their uh, last four games the way they wanted to, even though they've won leading up to this series against Oakland, two series in a row, and at 1.15 of the last six, they've lost the last two to Oakland. But you're right, Pasquantino, had been, he's been very good in AAA this year. He's hitting the long ball. He's a doesn't have speed, right? So he's going to play first base. Mm-hmm. Carlos Santana is not doing anything. No. He, he, is, he came in on a two-year contract in 2021. He's not hitting the ball well. And, of course, you know he, he's been known to – be a power hitter as well, but all of his numbers are below average, and it feels like he's now on the t- he's on the tail end of his career. It's why Cleveland didn't sign him two years ago. It's why he was on the market well, last had, year for Kansas City to sign. Well, yeah, he had a horrible finish to his yes career in Cleveland. Yes, it's why I was not a fan of that signing from from point A, a guy who is just trying to extend his career at this point versus. Having Nick Prado, who is the other top prospect at first base in the system for the Royals, and instead of that, instead of at least giving yourself an opportunity to work with Prado last year, potentially getting him playing time that you could utilize and develop at the major league level, no, instead you blocked him, and now this year you were blocking two prospects by having Santana on your roster. It just never worked out. It was a bad idea of to from point one, and I've disliked it. Among the things that I appreciate about this deal, besides the fact that it allows for Pascantino to come to the majors and can become a guy who will be most days your first baseman, they didn't do bad in what they picked up for pitchers. Now, can they develop them at the minor league level? I hope so. Keep them as far away from Cal Eldred as possible for a while. But to come away with a couple of minor league pitchers, plus uh, you give yourself the chance to bring up one of your top two prospects remaining in the minors, that's a pretty good deal for Carlos Santana when it's done. That winds up being better probably than what even you would have gotten a month ago for Santana. Now, if if I'm correct, so this call-up, it comes late enough to where the Royals should be in control of Vinny Pasquantino, mm-hmm. right, for at least six seasons? Correct. Mm-hmm. That would be right. But I want to ask you about also having Nick Prado, though, up. If it were to happen this year, I mean, would that make sense to you if it were to happen this year? It would probably be a case where you're looking at figuring out another opportunity for for Prado besides first base. Well, exactly, because if it's not first base, it's one's at first base, one's a designated hitter. That's true. Or one's at first base and one's in the outfield. Well, that wouldn't be Vinny Pasquantino, would it? Probably not. Probably lean more towards Prado at that. 
Because let's remember that this team has continued to be exceptionally flexible in what it has done with its infielders and outfielders. I mean, you've seen Whit Merrifield in the outfield, for crying out loud, how many times already this season. Right now, with the way that the roster sets up with Sal Perez out because of injury uh, and with uh, shortstop Mondesi out because of injury, you know, the, this team is kind of locked into a grouping that has has been, you know, pretty oh, pretty good in the aspect of that it's it's at least a consistent group for the most part. Santana was a drag on that offense over at first base, but defensively was still solid enough to to make it happen. Um, you know, some of the shuffling around had died down because of the fact that you had had uh, the the injuries take place the way they had. But Melendez was getting opportunities at DH when Salvi was catching. Now Melendez is your everyday catcher. Uh, so you could pull uh, Prado up, utilize him instead of Cal Ga- uh, Cam Gallagher as your DH. For the moment, Gallagher is going to be your, your primary DH, I think. Given that he and Melendez are going to go back and forth for the catching role. But I like that lineup. Melendez has shown that he can hit major league pitching thus far, has done a nice job. You know, we've seen Bobby Witt Jr. begin to do a lot of the things that made him the number one prospect. I mean, his speed right now is catching people off guard, I think, as much as anything in the majors. And now you add Pasquantino to it, this is a young group that you're starting to put together for a future. And more of those type of moves probably are coming now. But Santana was by far and away one of the first that had to be taken care of. Well, even though Vinny Pasquantino has been called up, he is not in the lineup for tonight. Hunter Dozier will play at first base. Probably timing because of yes. when the trade came down. True. Yeah. So tomorrow... Possibly. We could probably possibly see yeah, Vinny Pasquantino in the lineup. But also on the mound tonight is uh, Troy's favorite pitcher, Chris Bubich. Hmm. I got the name right. You did. And I've, I've been knocking Pasquantino out of the park. I've said it before because uh, shout out to uh, the Batcats in 2019 making a road <laughs> trip for a three-game series in Norfolk, Virginia to take on Old Dominion. And for those three games, I got to call three Vinny Pasquantino games who played at first base. You know what? K-State pitching actually did a, a, a pretty decent job against him. He was, for, especially for 11th rounder in the MLB draft, not a bad place, uh, but was 3-for-13 with a home run. He didn't really do anything after that first game against the Cats. I mean, Jordan Wicks, I remember him mm-hmm. doing a pretty good job against Vinny Pasquantino in that Saturday game. I couldn't find my book, though. I was trying to find my, my old scorebook. But I've gone to a different one since because it was, you know, it was back in 2019. He has worn minor league pitching out. He's batting 293 in his minor league career, going all the way back to 2019. He has not had a hiccup in that mix. 280 this year at AAA is actually the lowest mark that he had. It'd be very interesting to see, like, because you're right. He he did come up very quickly do, through the minor leagues. I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, Eric Hosmer, he, he came up rather quickly, did he not? Three years, maybe he a little did, over yeah. three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moose was a little bit later than that. Um, 
but I'm talking like you know was drafted by the Royals, made his way through, right now up in the lineup. You know who who has been up quicker than he has? You know in the last right ten years or well, so. Well, yeah, and and consider this: he he was at two levels last year, split time between two levels last year. 2019, he was at at Single A rookie Burlington. So short season Burlington is where he began. Then last year they put him at the full season A Quad Cities, and he needed just 61 games to advance to Double A. Started this season at Triple A and hasn't hadn't budged at all. Had not had a reason to be sent down because he was still hitting 280. Well, shout out to that spring training. Yes, that and let's be perfectly honest. Uh, I'd have to go back and find out. Wonder how much. Uh, he was involved potentially uh, in some of the activities that took place over at uh, what is Monarchs Stadium or uh, over at Kansas City, where it was basically the uh, 2020 uh, extended spring training or however you want to call it during the course of the uh, pandemic, where they housed minor leaguers and, and some of the guys that they may utilize off their traffic squad, if you will. By the way, you mentioned Melendez everyday catcher. Well, it'll be Ashley Gallagher a catcher, and it's going to be Melendez as the DH. DH tonight. He will DH tonight. And, um, yeah, everything else looks uh, pretty normal for the Royals tonight. 7-10 first pitch. Pre-game 6-30 from Kauffman Stadium. Chris Bubich will be on the mound as they started the three-game series at the K against the Texas Rangers. A quick break and a uh, little more baseball talk, but on the college level, but maybe not so much on the diamond. We've been talking about this competition. The results of this said competition is next. The more appropriate music coming back in actually would have been uh, shots, 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 because you know. It's been the most interesting oh thing out of the College World Series. I thought, you know, the play on the field, other than, you know, the last game, this the game uh, Sunday, very entertaining. Which, by the way, there's a controversial call in that game we can actually talk about here in just a moment. I don't know if you watched that, Troy. I did I did some of it, but yes, I know what you're talking you about. You know what the call I'm talking about? Yep. But uh, Ole Miss winning the College World Series National Championship. It's the first in their school's history, winning the title in baseball, beating the Oklahoma Sooners in two games out of, uh, out of the possible three. But what we've been watching closely is from actually just across the street from the right field entrance of what is it called now, the ballpark in Omaha? Charles Schwab Charles Park. Charles Schwab Park. And uh, this establishment, a local bar called Rocco's Pizza and Cantina, for the last few years have been doing a jello shot competition where fans come in and buy jello shots, and those fans would tell the bartender, if it's not obvious, the school they're rooting for, the team they're rooting for, and they would keep tally of how many, you know, what program, Fans bought the most jello shots. Ole Miss ran away with it. And of course, they beat Arkansas to send the Razorbacks home just a tad bit early of when they were wanting to head back to Fayetteville. Ole Miss finished with 16,174. This uh, Rocco's Pizza and Candina, they ran out of jello. So what they started doing is selling shots, just regular shots, and counting it towards the tally. <laughs> but this is the final with just the Jello shots. Oh. This is not including regular shots because if we included regular shots, it would be over eighteen thousand. 
Oh, Lord. But 16,174 for Ole Miss fans. Oklahoma fans finished in fourth with 814, and they were there longer than anybody else other than Ole Miss. But if you watch the College World Series, which, by the way, shame on Oklahoma fans for not traveling for this. Oh, that was lousy. It it was a – that's a great word, a lousy showing by Oklahoma fans – for the College World Series. Ole Miss was by far and away filling up the stands. It, I would have to say, they said it actually on the broadcast, it's probably 90% mm-hmm. Ole Miss fans. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there were people there as well, maybe locals, that wanted to check out the national championship. And you barely saw any Oklahoma fans there. Well, the results of this Jello Shot competition tells the story, in my opinion. That there was a big difference. And I'm sure some Ole Miss fans also, when they found out, oh, this team actually has a shot of winning this thing, let's make a late trip up to Omaha and try to and watch our team win the Natty. Well, that and they wanted to make sure that they outshone Mississippi State from last year. Arkansas finished in second, and they were nearly doubled up. They were nearly doubled up by Ole Miss. 8,661 jello shots were sold. And remember, these aren't a dollar apiece. These were $4.50 a piece. The grand total of what Rocco's made in nine days on Jello shots, $128,502. Congratulations. That's the real winner of the College World Series, Rocco's Pizza and Cantina. They are the winners of the College World Series. Tip, 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 and tip your bartender. Again, tipping the bartenders. I've said that before. Those bartenders made great money that week, and I'm proud of them as well. But here, here's another reason why Rocco's is such a winner as well, is because so the company that they partnered with to supply these Jello shots is called Slurp. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it is spelled S L R R R P. Slurp. Slurp. It's a great name. That's tremendous. Because you slurp those Jello shots. Yep. So they have partnered with Rocco's Pizza and Cantina, and for every shot that was purchased, one dollar uh, for every shot is going to be. So I, I don't have the total amount of shots here, but for one dollar that was sold per shot, they are going to donate it to either uh, the food banks for either Ole Miss or Arkansas. Good call, outstanding call. Yeah. yeah so going to a great cause, and what a tradition this is now. Right? Because thank you to Ole Miss fans and Rocco's Pizza and Cantina. This is a tradition that's going to keep continuing. And representatives of the College World Series, whoever sells the most or buys the most shots, is also not only catching you know, a buzz in Omaha, some cash is also going back to their food bank mm-hmm. to uh, the town they come from. Tremendous. So there's the icing on the cake to a – a very funny story out of Omaha, the one I've been following more closely than the College World Series, I got to admit. It was a very SEC heavy this year. Uh, another timeout. When we come back, it's time for Sam Honeybuns to take the driver's seat. He has a movie review for us in our one next. It is movie review time with, he's actually in the other studio with Big Steve, Sam Honeybuns. His movie review for every Monday throughout the summer. Here it is. 
Welcome to the Micro Movie Minute with me, Sam Honey. Today we're taking a look at the horror thriller, The Black Phone. The papers call him the grabber. I wish you wouldn't call him that. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe. Set in the 1970s, a teenager is abducted by a sadistic killer and trapped in a soundproof basement. When a disconnected phone on the wall begins to ring, he discovers that he can hear the voices of his killer's previous victims, and they are dead set on making sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to him. Do you answer the call for the black phone or let it go to voicemail? I'm so glad this movie came out when it did, because after a few months of mediocre to bad movies, the black phone is a breath of creative fresh air. First off, let's cover the plot. I really like the idea of setting the movie in the 1970s during the height of the kidnapping serial killer craze. It adds a bigger sense of dread to this already dark story. It also lends itself to some creative decisions when it comes to the camera work for some of the flashback and dream sequences looking like it was filmed on Super 8 film. The highlight of the story has to be the ending. While I enjoy the majority of the film, the ending was either going to make or break the movie as a whole. Thankfully, the ending delivers on a satisfying end that was even a bit emotional. Now onto the characters, which is the obvious highlight of the movie. Every character in this movie is so well done and very likable, well except for, you know, the child murderer. The two main leads are Finney, played by Mason Thames, and his little sister Gwen, played by Madeline McGraw. While both are fantastic, the real standout has to be McGraw. You can really feel her anger and pain at the fact that her brother and only protector is now missing and presumably dead. I would have loved to have seen more of her desperate search, but the scenes we are given are still great. The other standout is obviously Ethan Hawke as the movie's villain. He is behind a mask for about 90% of the film, but he's still able to give a terrifying portrayal of a mentally twisted killer. The story does a good job of utilizing the different masks Hawke uses, almost like each one is a different personality. I also enjoy that we are given almost little to no backstory to this character. This makes his motives unknown, which makes for an even scarier villain. My one gripe with the movie would probably be that this felt like a much shorter story that they stretched out to feature length. Overall, The Black Phone is a well-done, smaller thriller elevated by its ending and performances. That's why I'm giving The Black Phone four busy signals out of five. That'll wrap up this week's Micro Movie Minute with me, Sam Honey. Well, I'm glad we got clarification that the only unlikable character was the child murderer. Glad we got that clarified. I, I was wondering about that, if he would be likable or not. I mean, Steal it, or face, where are we going? I mean, it's got to be better than being a fan of uh, Pennywise the Clown. Now... Sam, I, I, I will pay you to go see Elvis if we could get a review on that. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of going and seeing it tonight. So. Oh, well then, hey, as soon as you see it, and when you're ready, give us a review, because uh, I I knew that like the Black Phone, or what, is that what it's called, right? Yeah. That, that was supposed to be pretty good, but the Elvis movie, off the charts. We got to see those hips swing. All right, hour two of the game, Dylan Edwards doing a little crooting for the cats. Number one song today, Ask Us Anything, your local news is next.